0: Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Our goal really is to see what God was doing then and to consider what He might want to do through us here and now, right? And Acts is telling the the history, really, of the formation of the the church. And and we believe that the church is God's program for this age. It's the the primary instrument through which God is ministering to the world. And so we, as the church, proclaim the gospel of Christ. We are gospel ambassadors. And not only that, but we proclaim the scriptures. We come together and we open God's word just like we're doing this morning. We do that in, in, in many different ways. And... We use that for the building up of the body, just like Ephesians 4 tells us to do. And so as we've mentioned, we are in the process, because we love the church and because we believe that the church is God's plan and God's program, we're in the process of preparing to plant another church. And Lord willing, uh, near the the, uh, end of this year in September, all the way on about as far as we can go on the other end of town. Uh, we're going to plant Anchor Bible Church. And uh, so I want to take just a moment at the outset here and just kind of update you, ask you for your continued prayers, for your support, and uh, some some of the things that we're working on that we would appreciate your prayers in. First of all, we're working on securing a location. I have, uh, in my great wisdom, identified that that would be an important part of a church plan. <laughs> I had suggested our dining room, but my wife was a little more optimistic. She didn't think we would fit in there since our family barely fits in there, uh, so, so we're looking for a location. Our, our goal, and, and, and my heart kind of from the beginning, has, has been uh, to be near the new high school uh, on the south end of town, maybe in the new high school on the south end of town, uh, so if you just pray that we can find a location uh, somewhere in that general area, we would love that. I've got some meetings even this week to look at a couple of, of possibilities, and uh, so we just want to be where, uh, exactly where the Lord wants us to be. And So just, just pray uh, for that as a detail. Um, some other details that we're working on is just about everything that you could possibly think that we might need to work on in order to, to plant a church. We're working on articles of incorporation, and we're trying to make sure we have a, a website with a domain name and, and getting key positions filled. I've been so uh, just encouraged by especially the, the men who have come and said, okay, like we're in, we're going, what do you need? And my answer has been something like, <laughs> I said, uh, I think I'm at the, maybe at the stage where I don't know what I don't know, right? But I, I said, I think the answer to what do we need is everything. We need everything, right? And so we're going to have so many different key positions that need to be filled. And, and I would just love for you to make these things a matter of prayer as well as considering uh, whether the Lord might have you be part of that team whether you know exactly how you would fit or exactly how you would, you would want to serve or not. Um, and, and part of that comes with a, a willingness to make a sacrifice, to step out of your comfort zone, to, to trust God to do something big uh, in our city, something big through Heritage Bible Church and the commitment that that we're making. And uh, so I'll just say this, if you're considering at least or would like to have more information, please join us for the church plant meeting and lunch. Uh, this would be uh, Sunday, March 12th right after the second service and uh, you can rsvp in the church app or you can contact the church office to let us know that you're coming to that march 12th Uh, if you feel like you know this is what you want to do and you want to be part of this one of the first steps you could take uh, aside from maybe just talking to me is to get on the church app and to join the church plant launch team Uh, and uh, it's a little tricky to navigate your way through there if you need help with uh, navigating the church app. You can talk to any of the staff members or any teenager in the church. Any, any teenager in the entire twelve-year-old. They can help you to navigate the church app. All right. <clears throat> well, grab your Bibles. Go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter seven and chapter eight this morning. It has been said, and maybe you've heard this saying, that the role of the preacher is to both afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Right? Afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And that's exactly what I I believe will happen this morning as we look at Acts 7 and 8, is that we're going to be encouraged, we're going to be comforted, but also maybe uh, I hope we're going to be kind of spurred on a little bit, uh, motivated to action, motivated to service. It's hard to look at the lives of great faithful men who did incredible things for the Lord and, and not be inspired by that. And so this morning I'm going to give you three points as we go here, three points of action. Drawn from the life of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and then we'll jump to Acts chapter 8 and do a quick overview of Acts chapter 8 and get some information from that as well. But first, I want to look at the martyrdom of Stephen and just discern what lessons we can take from his story. In Acts chapter 6, Luke was telling us, you remember last week, about how the word of God spread. And the numbers of the disciples were multiplying greatly. Remember, we said it just keeps saying, God added, God added, God added, right? And one of the exciting things that we saw that I think is so incredible and just so uh, maybe out of the box of what we would have expected if we were in that moment in time is that a great many of the priests, chapter 6, verse 7 says, a great many of the priests were being saved. Incredible. And thousands upon thousands of Jews are being saved and coming to Christ. And it seemed for a time like people are content to just kind of leave this new movement alone. You know, we said like last week, there's some bumps in the road, but I mean, you know, for the most part, it looks like things are pretty good. And, and yet finally, the leadership can't stand hearing about Jesus any longer. And so we saw even last week that they would grab the apostles and they would flog them, they would beat them, they would give them these severe, stern warnings not to preach in the name of Christ anymore. But the first person who is murdered for preaching the message of the gospel is not an apostle. Remember we saw in chapter 8 the establishment of this group that we still have in the church today, the role, the office of deacon. And so it was a layman, it was a a young deacon who became an outspoken apologist and the first martyr in church history and acts verses uh, chapter 6 verses 8 to 9 tell us that stephen is a man who is full of grace full of power and he's performing great signs and great wonders by the by the power of the holy spirit it tells us that some men from the synagogue came and, and they began to to argue with stephen verse 10 says none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit that stephen spoke with and it's interesting maybe uh as we see the Apostle Paul, like pre-conversion, right? Saul, in this story later on, it's interesting to speculate that maybe they had brought Paul there to, to try to debate Stephen, right? Stephen is the head of the Deacon Debate Club, right? He, uh, he definitely had a Timothy Award, okay? He, he, he went all the way through Awana, right? He knew the Word of God. And so maybe they brought Saul under Gamaliel, like, hey, you got to put this guy in his place. And yet no one could stand against the power and wisdom that Stephen spoke with. Why? Because he was infused with the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Look at Acts chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. It says, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God, and they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. In Acts chapter 7, the, the high priest asks Stephen, Stephen, Are these accusations true? Is it true, the things that they say about you, against you, is it true that you are blaspheming? And in response to that question, Stephen launches into what becomes the longest sermon in the New Testament, and by virtue of that, becomes the favorite sermon of every preacher you have ever known, right? Just because it's the longest, right? But it's amazing. The content of it is amazing and rich, and it shows so much depth and knowledge He starts out in verse 2, he says, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. And he he begins to go through the the history of Israel and basically give them an Old Testament survey. He talks about Abraham, and then he goes on to speak of Isaac and Jacob, who, verse 8 says, became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation. He talks about Joseph and how his brothers sold him to be a slave in Egypt, but God was with him. Verse 10, rescued him from all his afflictions, and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh. And then Stephen moves on to that great icon of the Jewish faith, Moses, through whom the law came to the Jewish people. But he also talks in verse 41 about how the people of God made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. What we're seeing unfold here is the faithfulness of God and the faithlessness of his people. Verse 46 says, David found favor in God's sight. Verse 47, that Solomon built the temple. And then as we come to verse 51 of Acts chapter 7, what we see is Stephen take all of this history and connect it to this exact moment in time that he's standing in. To really what's happening to him at this moment to the crowd that's listening to him. And he says in verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. This is the birth of the seeker-friendly movement. (laughs) No, it doesn't seem too warm and fuzzy, does it? It doesn't seem like, you know, how to win friends and influence people. You are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. We'll unpack that a little bit as we go here. It says in verse 52, which one of the prophets fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. See, as Stephen moved through this message, they would have agreed with an awful lot of it. They, they probably loved to hear a little a little history of their people, right? The chosen people and and, and God's faithfulness to them and the way God worked through Joseph and David and, and Moses. And yet, as he moved on to talk about the Messiah that the Jews had been longing for, that the, the prophets had proclaimed, what he told them was that Messiah already came. And you betrayed him. And you murdered him. And the Jewish leaders and the crowd that had gathered at this point in the message, basically had two options. Option number one is to repent, right? To to say, you're right, we've done this horrible thing and and fall on their knees and beg God for forgiveness and join this new movement of Christianity. The other option, which is the option they chose, is to shut Stephen up. And verse 54 says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. An incredible story. And we'll just... Skim the surface, honestly, this morning. Let's look a little bit at this man, Stephen, who preached with incredible boldness and courage because he had a faith that was a power that was fueled by faith, right? And this is exactly what we need today. When we read the story of Stephen and we go to Acts chapter 8 and we see Philip, we need these kind of men, right? Men who stand for what is good and true and right stephen is a fine example of what we would call biblical manhood and please note in acts chapter six and seven that stephen is not all fire and brimstone there was a a a bible mini series several years ago and i i remember distinctly the portion on stephen because he just seemed like a very angry character right i don't think stephen is an angry character i think stephen has a a heart well it says that he's full of grace and the holy spirit i think Stephen, the reason Stephen is doing this, the reason Stephen speaks so boldly is because of his love for the Lord and his love for people. He desires desperately for them to understand Christ the Messiah. His life is characterized by submission to the Spirit of God, by wisdom. He's a deacon, he's a servant to the body of believers. He's described in chapter 6, not only as full of grace, but the fact that he went from synagogue to synagogue in Jerusalem, preaching the gospel and doing miracles. Now, not only that, but notice, and this might be our our first action point, I think. Our first action point from the life of Stephen would be this. Be committed to character. Be committed to character. If you look back in Acts chapter 6, did you notice this? That because of Stephen's effectiveness, because of his wisdom, and because of his lifestyle, in order to try to stop him and, and shut him up initially, they did the exact same thing that they did to Christ, which is what? They brought false witnesses. They brought lies. So the only hold to get on his character would be something that they made up. That would be the only way to assassinate Stephen's character is to lie about him. Men, this is the goal, right? Right? An unassailable Christian character that is a witness and testimony for Christ. And so they lied and they drag him away and they put him on trial. This is all sounding kind of familiar, right? This is exactly what happened to Christ. In John 15, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And already in this early church, we're seeing that prophecy come, come to fruition. Be committed to character. Not just willing like Stephen to die for Christ, but willing like Stephen to live for Christ. Isn't that the harder part? I mean, I think maybe a a moment in time, a a one-moment decision to stand for Christ and, and lose your life, You know, maybe we could muster up the courage. But the strength of conviction to day in and day out live a life of humble obedience and service to the Lord, that's where the rubber meets the road. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us we've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And what what is the response to the leaders from the leaders from the crowd? What is their response to Stephen's vision, to Stephen's rebuke of them? Well, they're furious. Verse 54 says they were they were cut to the heart. It was for them as if a doctor was operating on them. Like Stephen was giving them open heart surgery, and they felt like he could see deep inside of them, into the parts of their heart that they didn't want anyone to see. And they're so angered, the text says they literally gnashed their teeth like animals. And instead of repenting, verse 57 says, they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears. Can you imagine these grown men, this group of aristocrats, these these Jewish religious leaders, covering their ears like Petulant children and basically saying, la, 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 we're not listening, we're not listening. And they rush at Stephen and they drag him outside the city city to stone him. And we know a little bit about stoning from the scriptures and that they sometimes executed criminals in this way. The historian Josephus actually references the stoning of Stephen and he just calls it savagery. Kent Hughes describes it this way. These respected, dignified leaders descend on young, innocent Stephen and executed him. Their action was illegal, brutal, immoral, but they did not care. Stoning somebody to death is not easy. You don't get the job done with the first few rocks. And even after you get the man down, it's a long, hot business. They didn't use little rocks. They used big, heavy stones. And to prepare themselves for the workout, they stripped to the waist and got somebody to keep an eye on their things until they were through. The man they got was a fire-breathing young arch-conservative Jew named Saul, who was there because he thoroughly approved of what they were doing. And so Stephen becomes the first in a long line of Christian martyrs. There have been martyrs in the Christian faith in every century since Acts chapter 7 was written. Some historians have estimated that over 50 million people have died a, a Christian martyr's death since the crucifixion of Christ. And it's good for us to be reminded of the history of our faith, that there are so many who considered faith in Christ more precious than their own life. And even today, right, this is not a, a story that we can read and say, wow, I can't believe these things happened. These things happen today. Christians are the most persecuted people group in the world today. And so many, as we look at the book of Acts and the history of the church, so many have been disowned by their families and excommunicated from Jewish synagogues or lost their jobs, forcibly removed from their homes. Many would suffer martyrdom at the hands of the Roman government through imprisonment and beatings or even death in the Colosseum. You didn't come to faith in Christ in this era without counting the cost first. But we know some of the history, and so we know some of the the effects that persecution had, right? The church, because of persecution, became more pure. Since believers are in danger of losing their lives just for naming the name of Christ, people don't join for social reasons. And persecution so often forced Christians to flee to areas where they normally wouldn't have gone as they flee persecution, and so they take the gospel with them. And the gospel is spread by the providence of God. And so many in the history of the church have been won to Christ because of the courage and the love and the confidence of the martyrs. Right, Even in death, I'm reminded this morning of a story of... One martyr during the the Reformation who was on his way, the the guards are are literally marching him, taking him to the the stake that he'll be tied to, to be burned at the stake, and as he's going, he's proclaiming the gospel, sharing the gospel with the guards, sharing the gospel with the crowd that's gathered. It's just an incredible testimony of faithfulness and, and, and courage as he's about to die. And one of the guards that's taking him is so overcome by this man's faithfulness and by the, the message of Christ that he's sharing that he comes under conviction and gets saved and, and, and blurts it out. And he that I believe. So they said, okay, come on along. And they burn them at the stake together. They die together. One of the things, that really the, the second action point maybe from the life of Stephen is... is simple something that we hear so often but maybe doesn't seem quite as simple in this context and that is simply don't be anxious don't be anxious embrace your calling and trust god right embrace your calling and trust god even in the face of death even when things look the most bleak on this side of things and we remember Romans eight twenty eight, and sometimes we like to kind of use this as a band-aid for each other, and maybe when we're in the midst of our hardest trials, it, it, it seems like it's falling on deaf ears. Romans eight twenty eight says, In all things God works for the good of those who love him. But how can that be said of Stephen's brutal murder? I mean, from our perspective, Stephen is too young. He's, he's too faithful. He had too much potential. It's hard for me not to think what what incredible things Stephen could have done for the Lord if the Lord had just left him on Earth. And we might be tempted to ask, "Where is Jesus? Why would Jesus let this happen?" But the good thing for us is that the story tells us where Jesus is. Right? Look at verse fifty-five. Jesus is in heaven. He's waiting. He's calling. He's preparing to say, well done, good and faithful Stephen, and give Stephen his eternal reward. I love the way Charles Ryrie describes this. He says on on verse 55, amid all this confusion stood the serene figure of Stephen, sustained by the risen Lord, standing on the right hand of God. This position indicates his ministry as a Melchizedekian priest giving sustenance to his people. Stephen fell asleep and was ushered immediately in the presence of his Savior. Here's something interesting. Flip over real quick, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Maybe a verse that that we know, but maybe we don't think of in the context of the, the life and death of Stephen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful promise of blessing from the Lord and Stephen has received it. And the story doesn't end there. The way in which God is faithful to fulfill his promise to use these things for good doesn't end there because we, we know the first sentence of the next chapter. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Saul is in hearty agreement with putting him to death, but also we know the rest of that story, right? Stephen is dead, but God's work goes on, and it would be carried out in the life of the man Saul who's standing there holding the witnesses' clothes, consenting to Stephen's death. And yet, out of tragedy came growth. Out of Stephen came Paul. I think I want to ask maybe one of my questions. I'm, uh, I'm going to start need to make a list because I have so many questions I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. So if you guys can just stay out of the way, okay? Let me get to the front of the line. I got a lot of questions. One of them is I just, I kind of want to know, like, what part did Stephen's testimony, the, the martyrdom of Stephen, this sermon that Stephen preached, play in the, the conversion of, of Saul to Paul, right? Uh, On the road to Damascus, I know there's this miraculous conversion. I mean, God does it, obviously, in a a dramatic fashion. But he also says, he, he tells Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, right? Maybe one of the goads Saul was kicking against was the conviction that he came under as Stephen preached, right? Still ringing in his ears. And don't forget to note that Luke records Stephen praying two things that Jesus prayed. Verse fifty-nine, Lord, receive my spirit. Verse sixty, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So even while he's being murdered, Stephen desired God would forgive people of their sins. He truly is a man full of grace. So there's another saying I mentioned the, the first saying earlier. There's another saying that pastors have. I think I first learned this saying uh, when I when I first got on as a pastor, and it was my first Easter as a, as a part-time, you know, early 20-something pastor. And here we are in the Easter service, the church is full, and the pastor says to me with no notice, Matt, why don't you come up and share something from the Word? And my eyes got as big as saucers, and I looked at my wife like, is this happening? Is this really, is this real pinch me, you know? And uh, so I I went up, and I who knows what I said? Uh, <laughs> somebody knows. I'm sure everybody was like, why is this guy one of our pastors? And uh, so I, I, I told the, the lead pastor at staff meeting that week, I said, hey, man, like a, a little notice would be nice, you know, like a little heads up. He goes, oh, no, you always got to be ready. And so there's the famous saying, you know it? Always be ready to preach, pray, or die, right? Always be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. And I've heard that saying my entire ministry. And as I come to the story of Stephen, I realize Stephen did all three, In the span of 30 minutes what an incredible life what an incredible story what an incredible example for us and the final action in the life of stephen before we jump into to philip in acts chapter 8 is simply this be an evangelist be an evangelist stephen gives us such an example because stephen could have saved his life I, i assume That if Stephen had said, Hey guys, I'm sorry for running my mouth. Sometimes, you know, I get away with myself. You know, I apologize. Please forgive me and just slink off back home, right? But he's compelled to preach the message of salvation, even if it cost him his life. Spurgeon says, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. And so just as Christ willingly gave his life because of his great love for Stephen, Stephen willingly gave his life because of his great love for Christ. One of the things I think would be great for you to discuss as you go to to small groups tonight is the fact that this is an impromptu sermon, right? Stephen didn't necessarily wake up this morning knowing he's going to preach a sermon. This is just on the spot. So maybe just ask yourselves, take a little poll in small groups, what would your impromptu sermon be like? What would your your text be? What would be on the, the top of your head, the top of your mind, you know, like me on Easter Sunday, right? <laughs> you know, what, what would it be if with your dying breath, you had to proclaim the message of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ? We'll jump to chapter eight, and I want to give you also three, three points from Acts chapter eight. I'll give them to you now, and, and you can look for them as we, as we go through this because we're going to go fairly quickly through this uh, chapter And these three points, I want to acknowledge, they may seem at odds with one another, but the reality is that they are not. And this is kind of the message of the early church, right? Wonderful things are happening. Terrible things are happening, right? And so the gospel, point number one, the gospel brings hardship and opposition. Point number two, the gospel brings joy. And point number three simply is that God wants to use us. God wants us to be part of what he's doing, and that might entail some, some hardship. It might entail some effort on our part, some difficulty, and yet being used of God to bring joy to the lives of those that he's called is an incredible gift. You know, God could accomplish everything that he wants to accomplish without us. Are you aware of that? Like God's uh, pretty powerful. I don't know if you've heard. Right? all-powerful, in fact. God can do anything He wants to do, any way that He wants to do it, at any time. And so the fact that the church is part of God's program, that God empowers and enables us, that He, he spiritually gifts us, that He wants to use us, is incredible. And so we ought not see service to the Lord, service in His church, the, the command to be as a, as a burden. This is an incredible gift. See, God's going to do what he's going to do, but he wants to use you as a part of it. And there's no greater thing in life than to understand the purpose for which you were created and called. Look at chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, just the first three verses here. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. I want to note first here, just verse 2, that Stephen was mourned over. There was great grief over the loss of this godly young man we don't want to as we go through this and as we see the great things that god is doing even through persecution we don't minimize the pain the suffering that's involved that's experienced by these believers verse one describes a great persecution and the believers are are scattered about the region and look at the description in verse three saul is ravaging the church this is his brainchild dragging people off to prison. This is no small thing. This is brutal and cruel. And Saul is seeking to destroy the newborn church. And years later, after his conversion, Paul tells us about how he did this. We can hear it in his own words in Acts chapter 22, chapter 26, Galatians 1. He says, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. In Galatians 1, he says, You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And so, this is what believers are enduring, this is what the church is experiencing. And it says, again, verse 4, that they're scattered. But it's interesting to see how this plays out and then to look at that word scattered. There are several different words for scattering in Greek. But the word used here is generally used to mean to spread or to sow. Just as you would scatter some seeds in order to to plant something, you, you, you toss them out, right? With the intent that they would take root and grow. And so, certainly, that's not the intent of the persecutors, but that's the intent the Lord has. The disciples are scattered as a result of persecution, but all the persecutors did by scattering the believers was allow them to plant themselves in the places they'd been scattered to. I mean, look what they did. Verse 4 says it. When they're scattered, what did they do? They preached the word. Now, don't, don't take that to mean, you know, these are all you know preachers these are all you know they got up and they exposited the scriptures this is just a word for good news they were proclaimers of the good news they're just evangelizing as they go James Montgomery Boyce asked a, a great question at this point in acts with this scattering and, and planting he says is that true of you wherever you find yourself whether scattered by work or family or or education, or some other means? Do you consider yourself planted in that place? Have you put down roots and borne fruit for Jesus Christ? It is because of this activity that even the bad things that happened to them served to advance the cause of Christ. And so we ask the question, where are we willing to go? What are we willing to do? How will we serve? Wherever the Lord takes us. We're committed to serving him and to finding ways to to put roots in and serve God for the time he has us there. So because of this persecution, the believers are scattered, the word of God is spread, and this is the evidence of God's sovereign control, right? That, That in spite of opposition, in spite of persecution, God is working, and the word of God is growing, and the church is growing. And it reminds us of this famous quote from Tertullian that the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The persecution of the early church, even the stoning of Stephen is illustrating this principle right before our eyes in Acts chapter seven and eight, and even as we go on. According to Acts 11:19, those who were scattered went as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And in Acts chapter 8 verse 5, We follow uh, following Luke here, right? The author of Acts, he's giving us exhibit A uh, to show us how the believers went about preaching the word, right? Because right here in Acts 8, the mission to Samaria is begun by Philip, and then it's carried on by Peter and John. Look at verses 5 to 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and were healed. So there was much rejoicing in the city. You know that Stephen is another, uh, I'm sorry, Philip is another deacon. Stephen, mentioned in chapter six. But by the time we get to Acts chapter twenty-one, he's just called Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist. He goes to Syria to preach Christ, to proclaim the Messiah. Remember the tension there was between with the message of to tell others about Christ because there are souls in need of salvation. And before he knows it, he has a revival on his hands. In verse eight, there is great joy in the city. In the midst of all this hardship and scattering and persecution and and opposition and hatred, there's great joy because lives are being transformed for eternity. Souls are being saved. What an incredible calling to be able to bring true inner peace and joy to people by introducing them to Jesus Christ and bringing reconciliation with God through Christ. We don't have time to to stop or to camp out here, but I just want to say, at least in in passing, also that the story about one of those who responded, Simon, who was a sorcerer, Simon the magician, right? And verse 13 says that he too believed and was baptized. And yet as we go on and and read the story, and you can read uh, the details in your own time, we find that essentially his faith is not genuine. Do you remember when we were going through the Gospel of John and we were talking about how the word belief means different things with different people, right? And I said, sometimes you've got to read, they believed with air quotes, right? They believed, right? In fact, we saw in John chapter 2 where it, where it says basically that they were believing in Jesus, but Jesus wasn't believing in them because he knew their hearts. He knew that they didn't have a true or a genuine belief. And so it seems here that Simon had this kind of air quote belief, not a, not a genuine conversion, But Simon was very interested in what he could get out of this. What kind of power, what kind of position, what kind of attention, what kind of following could he get out of all of this? In fact, when you go through church history, you find that that Simon is a dangerous heretic, a a false teacher. Irenaeus says that uh, he views him as the, the father of Gnosticism. And so it's just to make this point, that the physical, danger that the church faces is terrible. But even more concerning is the spiritual danger that the church faces. That already at this point in the very early church, the church is facing false teaching and a corrupted gospel. And this is why Christ constantly, publicly called out false teachers. And why Paul encouraged us to to keep an eye on those who cause dissensions or, uh, or hindrances contrary to the teaching that we've learned. Because the gospel is so easily corrupted. And so we want to stand firm and we want to stand boldly on the word of God. We see the same problem in Galatians. We see Paul sending uh, Timothy to Ephesians, right, to set things in order. The Galatians, he says, I- I'm shocked that you're so quickly abandoning the true gospel for this false teaching, So, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3 that the church of the living God is the pillar and support of the truth. Now, very quickly, Acts chapter 25 to 40, without even reading through, I I think you know the story. I hope you do. If not, I really encourage you to read this afternoon, talk through this again, even in small groups. But this is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and, and Philip... Kind of supernaturally runs up along. He hears him reading from the book of Isaiah, and the the Ethiopian eunuch is described as an important official to the queen of the Ethiopians, and so he's writing. As he's writing, he's reading from the book. He's not driving, right? No driving and reading. Right? He wasn't driving and texting. He was reading. Someone else is driving, I assume, and he's reading. And Philip hears the passage that he's reading, and. He asks the official, uh, essentially, if he would like a study buddy, right? And the Ethiopian is thrilled to have Philip explain the passage, and again, Philip shares the good news of Jesus. And what Philip is reading is the, the suffering servant passage from Isaiah. You can look at the, the entire context of the passage, Isaiah fifty two thirteen to 53, 12. It's one of the clearest messianic prophecies that exists in the Hebrew scriptures. And so the... The Ethiopian just, you know, lobs this beautiful softball to Philip by asking him the question, of whom does the prophet speak? And Philip says something akin to, well, let me tell you about it, right? And Philip explains to him, using the suffering servant prophecy, he, he explains to him the good news that Jesus was God's promised Messiah. And Philip's preaching has the exact effect that he desired it would. This man gets saved on the spot. And not only does he get saved on the spot, but as the the transport passes by water, he says, I want to get baptized on the spot. He asks Philip to baptize him. And when the baptism is complete, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly takes Philip away. And we know that Philip goes and continues preaching and makes his way north to Caesarea. The gospel is spreading. The gospel is being scattered. But not only does Philip go, and Philip continues spreading the gospel, but I suppose that we might be able to infer or assume that the Ethiopian continues on his way back to the Ethiopian court bearing the gospel. And so Philip's obedience, Philip's faithfulness, Philip the evangelist, Key part of the advancement of the gospel and the growth of the church, even parts of the earth. And I just want us to remember this morning that the things that God did through these men, that their faithfulness as evangelists, as proclaimers of the word of God, this is not something that is reserved for a select, for some, you know, paid evangelists or apologists or or people trained in some certain method. At the core, evangelism is the good news of Christ that every believer embraces and lives out on a daily basis. And what do you do with good news? I mean, I know, I know that you are the kind of people that love to be the first person to share good news, right? In fact, we, we had some good news the other day, and my wife, my wife said, is it okay if I text so-and-so and tell them? I said, well, yeah, why would you? Yeah, of course, why would you not? Well, uh, I didn't want you to get upset that you wanted to tell everybody. And I, I was like, hey, all right, I kind of appreciate that. She knows I like to be the one with the good news. I like to be the one to say the cool stuff, to tell the cool stories, right? And so, you know, she's just trying not to steal my thunder, which I appreciated. But me, she just does it. She just goes, you know, just trying to be nice at one time. So... Here's the thing, we have the best news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have these stories, these examples of history of of faithful men like Stephen and Philip, and we must be inspired by them and motivated to say, what does God want to do through us, among us, in our city, in our place, in our family? Let's be faithful to go with the gospel. Heavenly Father, thank you for... The lives and stories of faithful men, which really are just testimonies of you, your grace, your power, working through mortal men. And so if you could work through them, you could work through us. And Father, that's what we ask for, even though it's a little bit scary to ask because it might mean effort on our part, work on our part, might mean we have to give up some comforts or sacrifice a bit, and yet, Father, we want you to do great things in and through us. What an incredibly gracious God you are that you would allow us to be part of the work that you're doing in the world, and we praise you for it. Amen. This last song speaks of the hope that we have in our future home, and it's actually it's the same hope that the early church had, that the early deacons had, and in fact, uh, in the book of Titus, chapter 2, it uh, talks about waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We all know who wrote the book of Titus, the Apostle Paul, so this is the same hope that we have. Let's stand and let's sing about it together.